Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 100, Revelation, Plunged into Darkness. And it is a pretty exciting day on the podcast, with the exception of the By the Book episodes and a handful of bonus episodes tossed in here and there. This is, in fact, our 100th episode on Unbinding the Bible. And what I've decided to do for it is to continue right on through Revelation. I know, big shocker. But we're going to tackle Revelation 16, 10 to 21, which will wrap up the bold judgments that John presents to us in the latter half of the book. And then we'll be able to dive in to the several chapters that remain. What you'll notice on this episode, as you may have been detecting over several of the other most recent episodes, is that we do a lot of recapping now. We have covered so much ground, not only on the podcast, but also in the book of Revelation, and many of the times we've been projecting forward throughout the first several chapters of the book of Revelation, we're now in those sections. And so I'm simply going to remind you of places that we've been, continuing to remind you of the way the imagery in Revelation works. Today, we're going to be back in several of the Gospels, looking at sections that are important to keep in mind as we try to interpret what plunged into darkness might in fact mean. And then we're going to take a look at many of Paul's letters as well, because this imagery is not new and it is not unique to John and it is not even unique to our podcast. We've been talking about this for months. And so I'm excited to get in here. We're going to talk through several by the book episodes that are coming up in the next few weeks, things that I'm really excited to pass on to you. But without any more of an introduction, Let's just jump into the last 11 verses of Revelation chapter 16. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 16 verses 10 through 21. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Now that is quite a bit of a passage to attempt to talk about in a 30-minute episode, and so I will try to keep my comments brief, although I'm not convinced I'll be able to keep this episode under 30 minutes. 
But I do want to tell you about a book that I recently picked up and have actually had a conversation with the author, and I'm excited to share that with you in several weeks, but it's a book called Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times by Christopher J.H. Wright. And I will have more to say about him in upcoming weeks, but just know at this point, there has been no scholar of the Old Testament who has influenced my thinking and my understanding of the Old Testament to a greater extent than Christopher J.H. Wright. So I was very privileged a week or so ago to talk with him on the phone, and I've recorded that conversation and will release it in several weeks for you to listen to. But I wanted to start this episode by just pulling a quote out. It's a quote we actually didn't even talk about when we had our conversation, but it's one that I think is relevant to the passage I just read. And here's what he says. The Bible is fundamentally a story. The trouble is many Christians are simply living in the world's story and trying to make the Bible somehow relevant to that. That is, they shape all their assumptions and decisions along the same lines that the rest of the people around us in the world do, but try to add a dose of Bible gloss by applying Bible verses here and there. Or sometimes worse, we use the Bible selectively to reinforce our own personal aspirations, social and political views, or delusions. We have seriously lost the plot, the biblical plot. We have forgotten the story we are in. Living as Bible people is not just a matter of applying the Bible to my life. Rather, it is the other way around. We should ask, how can I apply my life, my little life in the here and now of this generation into the great story of the Bible? How can I live in such a way as to fit into this story, to participate in what God is doing and prepare for all he has planned, all his plans for the future? How can my life, my choices, my behavior, my thoughts and actions belong within this great story with some measure of worthiness and consistency? And I'm very thankful for this quote, and I've inserted it here because as I was preparing for this message, I remember growing up hearing talks about the book of Revelation. Now, of course, this passage surfaces, and one of the reasons it does is because of what happens right in verse 16 of the passage I just read, um, that, that these people assemble at the, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And, you know, it's funny, there, there was a movie, I don't even remember when, it was just called Armageddon, and it starred Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, and there was a meteor, giant meteor, you know, the size of Texas, right, hurling toward the earth, and so they send these oil drilling crew up into outer space to try to land on the, the asteroid and drill it, but during the movie, as the title itself bears, you know, the, the idea was, oh my goodness, this thing's coming to hit the earth, and one of the you know great scientists stands up and says, "Well, yes, it's you know this day is talked about in Armageddon or in the Bible. It's called Armageddon. It's the end of the world." And I'm not really sure historically where this got its you know ideas, but Armageddon, right? Everybody wants to talk about Armageddon and Armageddon, and it's going to be this this great battle, and it's going to be this political thing, and Russia is going to come in, and and China, and it's going to be this huge you know array of destruction and, and violence and what Christopher Wright's quote does for us is it reminds us not to make that mistake because many people, as he says, 
are living in the world story and trying to somehow make the Bible relevant to that. So what happens is people have political views of the socialist countries or the communist countries that they see in the world today that they are for sure are pagan and atheistic and therefore against God and his ways, um, many of which people who say this sometimes think that America is exempt from that, but that's for another day and another conversation. And so what happens is they begin to imagine that this big battle that's coming, this big horrific thing that's taking place is going to involve the political you know, landscape as we know it. Well, as hard as this is to say, that's taking your situation and making the Bible fit that situation as opposed to the other way around. Let's make the Bible what we're all focused on, and then we see ourselves in the biblical story. And one of the most genius aspects of the book of Revelation then, as we've been looking at time and time again, but sadly it's one of the most overlooked aspects, is how John roots his explanations of ultimate reality continually in the everyday lives of his readers. You see, Revelation's not some speculative futuristic book telling you what's going to happen, you know, in which the Christians in this world can just endlessly ponder and argue over political matters or like we're doing right now, right? A week before the election, arguing over who we want to be the president and who's going to lead our country into the dump if he gets elected or who's going to save us if he gets elected and so on and so forth. Rather, the Christians to whom John is writing in this book are still being exhorted right in the middle of these crazy events that are being described. So if you back up from chapter, from verse 16, which talks about Armageddon, right? Which I didn't title this message Armageddon because that's not the thrust of what John is saying. And therefore, that's not the thrust of what I want to talk about. The word Armageddon, as it is transliterated, just means mount of assembly. This is just a reference to the fact that all of these nations who have been deceived are going to rise up and it's going to be connected to this idea of this kingdom um, of the throne of the beast as it's referenced to the kingdom of darkness. And I'm going to get into that as we go. But right in the middle of this section, there's a parenthetical statement. It's the verse that immediately precedes this battle of Armageddon, right? And here's what it says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, this is a statement inserted in the book as being a quote from something that Jesus already addressed to one of the churches. And if you go back to the seven letter or to the churches to the seven, I'm sorry, the, the addresses to each of the seven churches, right? You're going to see that this is here in, in the, the church at Sardis, he talks about the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and he never blot his name out of the book of life. But he says, if you don't repent, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You have the reputation of being alive, Jesus says, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, here's what's most destructive in my understanding of the Bible to looking for modern day political events to be the fulfillment of these supposedly predictive elements of revelation. You ready for it? They completely remove Christians and the faithfulness of Christians from the equation. 
These are endlessly speculative events that we debate amongst one another and read articles about that do not address the current brokenness, fallenness, and darkness that is alive and well and is tempting Christians in their own personal lives, in their communities, in their communities of faith, in their states, in their nations. And I don't know, there's a a famous book, I've sadly never read it, um, but it's uh, The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, who was an Orthodox um, uh, uh, Christian, um, Orthodox Christian during the, 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 uh, oh goodness, I'm completely blanking, during communist Russia. Um, I think I'm getting that right, actually. Goodness, now I'm going to air to you all my ignorance about history. I'm totally blanking on this. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this fantastic um, quote in the middle of his book, and I would just like to read it for you because I think it's relevant here. And he says, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And I think that that's incredibly insightful, incredibly valuable, because what we're not arguing here as we look at what John is describing, we're not removing ourselves from the events of the things he's talking about because he's not describing something that that is that is that we are exempt from. In fact, we know that because right in the middle of the passage he reminds the Christians listening to this to stay awake keep their garments on so that they might not go about naked and be seen exposed. And so the thrust of what I want to talk about is really going to grab a hold of the fifth bowl judgment, this uh, throne of the beast being plunged into darkness. And this is just my theme for the rest of, of this podcast episode. And here it is. All who choose the ways of darkness will in the end be plunged into darkness. Let me repeat myself. All who choose the ways of darkness will, in the end, be plunged into darkness. N.T. Wright had some insightful thoughts about this, and I'd like to share those with you. He says, John is aware, as the plagues become more terrible, that some of his hearers might not off, not physically, but spiritually. How easy to think, oh yes, those people who have got it coming to them. They are wicked and they deserve it, but we're all right. We can just relax. Let's sit back and enjoy the movie. No, you can't, John is saying. I'm talking about the serious danger of deceitful spirits let loose into the world. Many of you have a poor track record at recognizing deceit when it stares you in the face. You need to keep awake. He goes on and points out that these final three plagues are terrible. And part of their terror is the sense of how easy it is to give allegiance to the systems that are here under judgment. Those who fall under judgment here are those who have been given every chance to repent and have refused. They have chosen to go down with the monsters rather than to suffer and be vindicated with the lamb. And so if we back up to verse 10, which was the first verse I read at the beginning of this episode, we, we just read this. The fourth angel, fifth angel poured out his bolt on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
Now, this is really the thrust of what I want to talk about. We're dealing here with light and darkness. We're dealing here with the fifth bowl. It's poured out on the throne of the beast. And all through Revelation, I won't repeat it, but all through Revelation, we've been looking at thrones. We've been looking at ruling. We've been looking at the throne, the one seated on the throne in Revelation 4, and the lamb standing next to him ruling from that same throne versus the throne of the beast the throne that the dragon you know, equips the beast with from Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. But if we compare, and you remember we've been doing this, um, if we compare the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, which I've shared before, are just repeating the same elements only in greater and greater intensity, let's just remember what we saw in the fifth seal. If the fifth bowl is opened on the throne of the beast and its kingdom is plunged into darkness. Remember what the fifth seal was. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, when you deal with the throne of the beast and its kingdom being plunged into darkness, some of the things that you're dealing with here, as N.T. Wright correctly points out, are some of the systems that are going to be judged. And at any time, the beast rules on his throne in a power over kingdom of the sword kind of way, people's lives are crushed. There's oppression, there's injustice, there's slavery, there's death, you, you name it. And so it's, it, many of these people in the first seal or in the, the, the first series of, of events here in the seals are crying out with a loud voice looking for justice in the middle of injustice. And these voices that are crying out are heard by the Lord himself. If you jump ahead to Revelation 9, 1 to 6, we're looking at the fifth trumpet. And here's what it says. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the shaft. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or any or of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, if you remember back when we looked at Revelation 9, 1 to 6, we talked about these. These were the, the, the presence of the demonic. The sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Blackness and death has, has swallowed up this world. And these people who are now at the mercy of they do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They have not been told who they are in the, in, the, in, the, in the person of Jesus 
as followers of the lamb. They don't know who they are and they receive torment and they receive agony. This is precisely what it means to be part of the kingdom of darkness. As Paul talks about in Colossians chapter one, he tells us that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. There's a contrast here between the ways of darkness and the ways of the light. And so we've seen this now in the fifth seal. It gets more intense in the fifth trumpet. And now in the fifth bowl, we simply have the entire throne of the beast. Its whole kingdom is plunged into darkness, which is where I got the title for today's episode. But what this means ultimately is that the ways of the beast and its corruption will itself face corruption. The darkness of the beast will itself receive darkness. The death, destruction, and darkness that the beast created in the lives of people will be poured out on that very beast's way of life. The sin will come back on its own head. So much of the Bible, as I've already referenced, is filled with light darkness imagery. If you even go all the way back to episode five in this podcast, Made in the Image of God, we noticed that in Genesis 1, a direct comparison was made between the sun and moon ruling the day and night and human beings ruling over the creation. Sun and moon both give light to an otherwise dark universe. Man and woman were to reflect God's light over an otherwise chaotic world in much the same way. And if there's one theme that the Bible is intent on getting us to grasp, it is that the ways of the Lord are always those that choose to rule by serving, never by dominating. Ruling according to the ways of darkness has always meant corruption, abuse, neglect, suffering, bondage, slavery, and death. This is precisely the realm from which Jesus came to set people free, both their own personal enslavement to this way of life, as well as their tendency to enslave others in the same broken system. And so let me just read for you a couple of passages that help frame why Jesus has come. And they're both from Jesus's own mouth. And Luke 4, starting in verse 16, this is what we read. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, right in verse 18 of Luke 4, Jesus identifies four categories of people. He's proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. So we've got poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. These are the kinds of people 
These are the kinds of people Jesus spends an exorbitant amount of his time going after in the Gospel of Luke in particular, reaching out toward women, reaching out toward tax collectors, remembering the the parable of the lost son, these lost, wayward, poor, oppressed, broken-hearted people. These are the people that systems of darkness in this world oppress and squeeze out and overlook and marginalize and make life harder for. These are precisely the kinds of people that Jesus has come to deal with. And the reason he's come to deal with them is because the kingdom of darkness, the throne of the beast, is being directly challenged by the person of Jesus. Jesus' love and care for these marginalized, overlooked, oppressed, um, hurt, wounded people is simultaneously his love and affirmation of them as image bearers of God, but it is also his condemnation and critique and judgment on the kinds of systems and the people caught up in those systems who create the marginalization of these kinds of people in the first place. And this, again, is why when Jesus goes and has dinner with tax collectors and sinners, it draws the attention of the Pharisees. The Pharisees find it their business to complain about Jesus loving tax collectors and sinners. Well, why does that matter what the Pharisees, what Jesus is doing with with tax collectors and sinners in the first place? It matters because the Pharisees' belief in their own righteousness was dependent upon them separating themselves from people they felt weren't as worthy as the Pharisees themselves were. Jesus' love and attention and care and compassion and invitation to table fellowship was simultaneously a welcome embrace of the tax collectors and sinners and a judgment, critique, and condemnation of the Pharisees' religious system that excluded such people. And Jesus identifies for us straight up why that's the case in John chapter 3. And it's a passage I love, and I love to read it, and I want to keep reading it because it's continuing to have an impact on the way I understand the world. But here's what Jesus says in John 3, 19 to 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what John, what Jesus is saying here is those who do what is true choose to walk in the light. They bring everything they say and do into the light so that others can see their works as well. They can see them as being in line with the truth of who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus, who not only spoke truth, but who was the truth. And yet Jesus can't come in proclaiming a kingdom of God in the midst of other kingdoms and not simultaneously shine light into places that there was darkness as well as care for those who have been buried under the darkness. So what John's describing for us in Revelation 16 is this idea that this fifth bowl is going to be poured out on the throne of the beast and its kingdom is going to be thrown into darkness. This is something that Jesus already began when he came. Jesus is here as the light. The darkness can't do anything about it, but Jesus is here exposing the truth of who God is, of who humanity is supposed to be, of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, 
of what it means to, to look and stare in the face of broken, corrupt systems and call them out for what they are. And you and I know, as followers of the Lamb, how grateful we are that Jesus did this. He did this for us and for our salvation. But at the exact same time, he was hated and despised by those who were operating under the, you know, the beast. They did not want their deeds exposed. They did not want the things that they believed to come into the light. Jesus says in John 3 verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and he does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People like the veneer that functions, you know, that helps them, that, that they can do what they do and, and not worry about the consequences. But Jesus is saying, that is not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. And there will come a point, as Revelation 16 is highlighting for us, that when this kingdom of the this throne of the beast and its kingdom is plunged into darkness, people will gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven. They will not repent of their deeds. And this repent of their deeds again draws us right back to Revelation 9, where we know that based on this judgment, judgments alone will not cause people to repent. The self sacrificial witness of the church will. And yet, there will still be hardened people who love their ways of darkness, who love the systems in this world that benefit them despite who those systems oppress. And when those things are plunged into darkness and the bowls of wrath are poured out on the throne of the beast, this is the moment at which those, the true colors under the surface will result in people cursing the God of heaven because they loved their lives the way they were functioning they loved the riches and the wealth and the prestige and the fame that they gained at the hands of other people. And when the Lord Jesus himself says enough is enough, their response will be true to themselves as people. Their true loves will reveal themselves. And when the Lord puts an end to the ways of darkness and people find themselves angry at God about it, it is because they loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so this is why Jesus says in Luke 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. There will come a time, many of the times already happened in the gospels and are continually happening, but there will come a full time where the things that you heard in, you know, you said in the dark will be heard in the light and what was whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That is an exciting an exhilarating reality when victims of oppression realize that there will come a day where the truth of what their abusers and oppressors have done to ruin their lives will come to light. 
This is glorious news to those who have been shamed and made to feel guilty by leaders, by teachers, by counselors, by parents, by those in church ministries, God forbid, but it is all too often the case, who have oppressed people using religious-sounding language. Jesus critiques the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12. He critiques them very directly and very bluntly in Matthew chapter 23, unleashing a torrent of woes on the kinds of people who push people and tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders and are unwilling themselves to even lift them with their little finger. These are religious people who've masked a religious veneer over their dark and oppressive ways, who in the end will be revealed as being followers of the throne of the beast. This is why John inserts two churches to stay awake, to be on guard, to not think that they are above or exempt from the kinds of deception of the enemy who wouldn't also pull Christians into the same nightmare But Luke chapter 12 is a day of dread for those who are the oppressors themselves. The things that they have done in secret, the things that they have said behind closed doors. At this point in the political process, a week before the election, every single political ad is one party trying to convince the public that the other party has done and said and is true um, things in hidden places that each party believes is their responsibility to bring to the light. And it's as, as an effective as a political campaign strategy as you might guess for. But what Revelation is reminding us of is that there is one true judge who sees, who hears, who knows And the truth of this reality, as I've said, is liberating and and it is balm to the soul for those who have been oppressed, who have been shamed, who have been abused, who have been neglected, who have been made to feel that they are less than or or worthless or not um, valuable enough for somebody to give them their care and attention. These are words of hope for people like that. And at the exact same time, they are words of terror because you can no longer hide from the one who sees everything. You can no longer hide from the one who knows all hearts and who will one day reveal these things, not only to the people themselves, but to the entire world. Justice will be served because this is the way the kingdom of God comes. It comes through liberate those who want what he has come to offer and at the same time, judge those who do not want to lose what they've unfairly acquired. Now, just to talk through for a few more minutes about this darkness versus light idea, I've already referenced once the Colossians 1 passage. And the reason why I have is because the way Paul writes, he wants us to remember that we were in darkness. We all were. Paul, Paul is writing a letter to Christians in Colossae, but he wants them to remember that they were in darkness. And he says to them that Jesus has delivered us from darkness. Well, the Father, I guess, delivered us from the domain of darkness, the realm of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So here, Paul wants us to re- realize that we've, we've, been, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and a place where we lived this way. And to contrast that with the kingdom of his beloved son, I think is to also contrast that with being a kingdom of light. And that would be consistent with 1 John. That would be consistent with John chapter 1 um, and several other places. But Paul not only tells Christians that we were in darkness, Paul straight up tells the Ephesians that we were darkness. And this one's a little bit harder to hear, but just listen for this for a second. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true and right. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul will then go on and talk about being filled with the spirit, not being drunk with wine for that leads to debauchery, but instead being filled with the spirit. And we'll get to why I think that's significant in just a second. But before we do, let me draw your attention to verse 13 of Ephesians 5. I just read it where Paul says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. Well, this is precisely what what John addresses to the church in verse 15 of Revelation 16 when he says, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Don't fall asleep here, people. Don't misunderstand that this coming out of the beast, out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, they're like demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. They're deceptions. They're demonic spirits drawing people in to see the Lord's kingdom as a threat to their own, not as the liberating end that all of their kingdoms are striving for. You see, people, systems that people create and and structures that eventually go on to oppress people, they don't have to do that. Typically, people gather around in structures or units or systems in order to cause the flourishing of the people within those systems. And initially, when those systems are created, the people who create them see them as a way of gathering around a collective in order to serve the needs of the people. But what typically happens in the deceptive, demonic ways of the kingdom of darkness, the throne of the beast, is that those systems begin to take on a life form of their own. And at various points, the people in the systems end up serving the systems, not the systems serving the people. That's a demonic brokenness, okay? And what John is trying to get his readers to understand is do not think for a second that that same reality cannot happen in the church because it can In fact, when Paul tells the Ephesians to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, um, um, when he says, but instead expose them, if you want to know the way to find out 
whether darkness is really present in some of the systems that we hold dear, just have someone stand up and attempt to expose brokenness in systems and watch what happens. I don't say this lightly, and I've rarely talked about this because I'm sort of in this strange place of wanting to honor and be faithful to the church as, as I know it and as I'm, I serve it. I'm, I'm a pastor. This is what I believe is right and what I believe I'm being called to do. But it is very sad to me how when victims of actual abuse, spiritual abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, come forward in a church or in a Christian organization or a Christian school and they verbalize, they expose these shameful deeds of darkness that they have been abused, that someone has touched them in an inappropriate way, that someone has made verbal comments to them sexually, has degraded them as a person, has told them something, um, you know, uh, um, just unkind or, uh, you know, um, just inappropriate maybe is a different kind of word. I know I'm kind of stumbling through my ways. When you watch people defend the system, defend this person in leadership as if they could never do that to another human being, you watch the pushback and the the clamping down that happens of people who say, oh, they're just looking to ruin somebody's reputation or they're just look let me let me explain something to you briefly and, and I'm hoping in, in months to come I, I can gain some clarity on the way I I word this. But no victim of abuse wants their day of fame by dragging through the horrors of what they have experienced internally and externally with broken relationships. Nobody wants to bring that into the light in order for, as it's often accused against them, that they're somehow going to get their their few minutes of fame. This is not how it works. Because I can't even count the number of abuse victims whose stories I've heard or whose um, stories I've read who talk about, oh, my life was hell carrying that abuse internally for so many years. The real hell began, though, once I came out and shared it with somebody who I thought I could trust, and they turned around and blamed me for disrupting the nice, clean system and structure that they had in place, and that they began to tell me that whatever happened to me must have been my fault because the person who abused me would never do that. Guys, this is the throne of the beast. This is the kingdom of darkness. This happens all the time. And the reason we don't know about it as much as we should is because the enemy is a great deceiver. He doesn't just deceive us in what we do in our own personal lives. He deceives us by showing us systems or structures or things that present themselves as beautiful and as shiny and flashy and godly, God forbid, that in reality aren't that way. And so John is cautioning the church. He's saying, wake up. 
And here's what Paul is saying, the same thing. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. The days are dark. The days are twisted. And we need to be people who are interested, right, in knowing what the truth is and gently leading and loving victims of abuse and other type things along the way. Because when we look at the person of Jesus and someone is dragged before Jesus, like the Pharisees dragged the the woman caught in adultery, Jesus uh, with compassion addresses this woman that has been dragged before him because he knows the brokenness of what these Pharisees are doing. Why is the man not present? when they drag this woman before Jesus. Jesus can see right through their hypocrisy and I think he calls them out on it. I have a suspicion that some of what he might be writing in the sand, although I don't really know. But to to kind of pull circle right back again and then we'll wrap this up. Paul says that we were in darkness, we were darkness. And then as I've already read, Jesus talks about in John three that people loved the darkness. So there's a lot of darkness going on, which is why when Jesus comes in John 1, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the darkness can't overcome it. The darkness in a room, when you flip on the light switch, where does the darkness go? It goes away because it cannot be in the same place as the light. And so people within their own internal worlds with the systems and structures and organizations they align themselves with, there will always be layers and levels of darkness and light. And we are called to be people of the light who truly pursue the truth. And we're not afraid to point out truth, even in people, leaders, systems, structures, structures, churches, even that we think are above that or are exempt from that kind of thing. It really shocks me if I'm blunt about how fragile people seem to be regarding when one's own political party or one's own political candidate is shown to have flaws or to be hypocritical or to be um, overly harsh in the way that they have chosen to you know, exercise a policy. And those who support that candidate or support that party seem unable to acknowledge that light has just been shined into this particular area and it has exposed something as being of the darkness. And people freak out like if they, you know, admit that light could really be shined into darkness, that somehow I'm I'm a terrible person for believing in this. And and I see this happen a lot. Um, People whose views of something they love and support can't handle the critique of someone exposing Um, their ways or their beliefs or whatever to the light. They don't want it. They want to keep it hidden away. And Jesus is inviting us and has from the very, very beginning not to be afraid of that because his spirit is a spirit of freedom. And I think John is doing that here by, by warning them to stay awake. But he, he draws in, in verse 13, that, that, um, he has these unclean spirits are coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of, mouth of the false prophet. Okay. This is in direct contrast. We might call this the unholy trinity. We've got dragon, beast, false prophet. It's in direct contrast to the holy trinity, father, son, holy spirit. Revelation often refers to the holy trinity as the one seated on the throne, 
the lamb and the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we, we get that as we read, as we read um, through the book of Revelation itself. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The false prophet is the spirit of deception. This is exactly the way John is framing this. And so he's constantly cautioning the church. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Don't get caught up in the ways of the beast. Don't follow the ways of the beast. Don't follow the ways of the beast. Remember that it's lamb power that you're seeking. Remember, it's the ways of the lamb that are going to be vindicated in the end. Remember that the one seated on the real throne is honored to have the ways of the lamb ruling right next to him. All those who rule according to the ways of the lamb will in the end be vindicated. Do not give in to the ways of the beast. Recognize that deception is just that. It's deceitful. So the thought that nothing about what we think we might be deceived in is naive. So as we're following along, as I read this, I think to myself, where am I potentially, um, you know, in, in, in bed with darkness? I need to be aware of that. Bringing things into the light, things that I'd rather keep hidden away, things that I don't want people to know about me, because if they did, they would judge me harshly. Well, why am I afraid of that? I want Jesus to set me free from those kinds of things. And so we pull our way back down and we get to the end of Revelation and verse 17. It tells us that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came from the temple, from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake you know, we think of the shaking of the heavens that Hebrews 12 speaks about. Um, I preached a sermon called Shaking the Heavens that I released right at the beginning of this Revelation series. It might've been episode 42 on the podcast, I think it was. You might go back and listen to that again because N.T. Wright points out that this is not the collapse of the physical earth. And I know a lot of people read Revelation literally and want to assume that that's what's happening. I don't think that's what's happening. I think N.T. Wright is correct. He goes on to say, this is the only way to describe the collapse of the entire social and political system on the earth. The tectonic plates, if you will, of different idolatrous human systems will move against one another, will move against one another one more time and nothing will ever be the same again. You know, I even back up a little bit and I think through what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus judged the world of darkness as being a world of darkness. Think about this. When Jesus comes as the light of the world and he honors those who are in desperate need of hope, help, healing, love, embrace, etc., And he is seen by those in authority whose systems and structures were built or should have been built in order to protect and care for those in need of care and love and acceptance and embrace. When those religious systems and authorities saw Jesus, they saw him as a bringer of destruction to their way of life. Their solution, destroy him, get rid of him, and then all of our systems and structures can remain in place um, unharmed. But when that happened... Something terrible took over. And what you read in Matthew 27 is really interesting because in verse 45, it says that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. If you know anything about the way Jewish 
people told time, the sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. Most likely some of the um, most well-lit times of the day, to be perfectly honest, and yet there was darkness over all the land. Why? Well, because darkness was showing itself in more ways than one. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then in verse 51, we read something really strange. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now that is really interesting to me. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Kind of sounds like an earthquake to me. Kind of sounds like something definitive was taking place. One system was shaking because another one has come to take its place. And this is what Hebrews 12 talks about is that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Well, what's being shaken? Well, the earth is being shaken. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. The kingdoms that were crashing the moment Jesus died were all the kingdoms of this world. That's why Matthew tells us that the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so N.T. Wright kind of sums up this whole section by hitting all three bowls in just rapid succession. And with this, I'm just going to wrap it up. He says that the fifth plague is a strike at the very heart of the monstrous imperial system, making it collapse under its own weight. The darkness evokes the plagues of Egypt, reminding us yet again that the point of the plagues is the destruction of the oppressors in order that the oppressed might escape. I think that's, I just think that's beautiful. The sixth plague awakens again, as in chapter nine, the deep seated fear in Western Europe about the great enemy to the east, in their case, Parthia. The Euphrates River forced the boundary like the River Rhine in Europe. It was a natural barrier, relatively easy to defend. But the angels, but the sixth angel's bowl, when poured out, dries up the river. And we're told so as to prepare the way for a ver- from the kings of the east. And what N.T. Wright says is so as to prepare the way for a very different kind of exodus. Instead of the children of Israel going across on dry land through the Red Sea, the kings from the east can now charge with their armies across the river ready to attack. I think this is brilliant. In terms of a metaphorical use and a literary device, John, we already know, loves the Exodus, has used it repeatedly throughout the book, and apparently, according to N.T. Wright, and I think he's correct, is using it again here. And the idea being simply this. In the Old Testament, when a nation was, was being threatened with the judgment of God, primarily Israel, that judgment was always in giving people over 
to enemy occupation. Um, Israel's major problem in the Old Testament was national security. It was national idolatry. It was militarism. It was a, a booming economy. Who they were going to trust to bring about all the things they felt they needed to exist and function as a nation. And many, many times they chose to um, construct things in ways of being as a people that simultaneously claimed the Lord's blessing and protection, but they had in essence rejected him. And so the Lord tells the people time and again, if you want to break treaties, if you want to, you know, build up your military arsenal and you want to taunt the nations around you, yeah, guess what? Somebody with more weapons than you is going to come in and is going to overtake you. If that's the way you want to live, instead of trusting in me, then I'm going to allow you to have exactly what you want. The same thing is being threatened now by Rome. Rome is doing the exact same thing that Israel of old did. And the Lord, Rome always had their, their fears. They, they were afraid of the Parthians. They were afraid of somebody who could be bigger and stronger than them and were always looking to secure their nation. Well, they were always looking to national security. And here is a totally legitimate fear that somebody is going to be able to come and to conquer them. This is a destruction of the empire. This is a destruction of Rome. This is an upcoming destruction of any nation who builds and looks for its own security and its own protection, trusting in its own military might to protect it. And the Lord is saying, one day, all of those kingdoms who lived and functioned and structured in that way are going to see themselves as having been actually part of the kingdoms of darkness, and they will be destroyed in like fashion. And he right then says, in the seventh bowl, into the air it goes, the space between heaven and earth, the sphere of spirits and powers and ideas and influences. And this is in verse 17 of Revelation 16. It says that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice from the temple came from the temple, um, um, from the throne saying, it is done. You know, it's funny because Jesus uttered those same words on the cross. It is finished. There was a true judgment taking place on that day, judging all of the corrupt, broken, fallen ways of this world and ushering in a kingdom that will never end. And the Lord knows that the same thing is happening here. And I think there's a connection. I, I can't claim to know exactly how this works, but there is a connection between what Jesus ushered in as the end of the age through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross and what is ultimately coming in the end. Like Jesus has begun it. He's inaugurated it. It started with a true judgment of the ways of this world. And all Christians are called to do is speak truth to power. We speak light into darkness we speak, act, and live the truth the way we see it, and we are not afraid of whatever systems or structures believe that they are above such critique. We know that Jesus judged broken, fallen, dark, destructive, enslaving, and death-producing systems when he came on the earth. We know that his return is to finish the job. We know that his return is to say, what I already showed you was corrupt, broken, and on its way to death. I am now coming to finish that work. Our task as Christians is to show the world that in the middle of death, destruction, chaos, and darkness, there is a way to live differently. That's what we're called to do. And even Paul in, in Ephesians chapter two says that, that the enemy is the prince of the power of the air. So this seventh bowl into the air, right? People will say that like, oh man, you know, something's in the air. I don't really know what it is. And 
what we mean is we're surrounded by it. It's outside of us. It's inside of us. Like we breathe it. We don't even know it's there. And it's the space, as N.T. Wright points out, between heaven and earth. It's the sphere of spirits and powers and ideas and influences. People are constantly immersed in this. And we need to be those who can think, who can walk wisely, who can be critical, not not in a negative sense, but like staring at something, looking at all of its parts and saying, something is off. Let's see if we can figure it out. We're going to bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control into our pursuit of the truth, but we're not going to be afraid to open closet doors. We're not going to be afraid to peel back veneer. We're not going to be sucked in by the ways of, of who gives off something in the, in the present that makes us think, well, this is, has to be the real thing because they said this. Well, maybe it is, but living according to Jesus's way means it will not just have words that, that are similar to what Jesus said, but it will look like Jesus. It will feel like Jesus. And anything that doesn't is part of the kingdom of darkness and will eventually be judged. That darkness, those broken ways, those corrupt fallen systems will all be plunged into darkness And John wants us to know, and I want you to know, and I want myself to know that all who choose the ways of darkness or all who are caught up in the ways of darkness or all who love the ways of darkness will in the end be plunged into darkness. This is what will definitively happen. And this is what John is strongly exhorting his church to stay awake and be observant about. We need this right now. My goodness, do we need this right now? I'm thankful for Revelation. I'm thankful for you listeners. Like I said in the intro, I've got several by the book episodes coming up. I'm very, very excited about. Some of them are dealing directly with these topics. And so some of it is fresh in my mind. As I've shared, I have Christopher Wright conversation coming up. Here are your gods. I have a conversation with Lee Camp on his book, Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. Two conversations I've had recently that are an outstanding um, introduction into some of these ideas, as well as Chuck DeGroat's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. These have been the books that have been shaping my thinking. These are the men whose insights are astounding and who are driving me right back to the scriptures, driving me right back to the cross, driving me right back to the person of Jesus, asking him to show us, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the church? What does this mean for people committed to the light and to the ways of Jesus? What does this mean in a world that is increasingly comfortable with the ways of darkness? And how can we see darkness just as easily in our own selves As Alexander Solzhenitsyn points out, knowing that the line between good and evil is not something out there, but that it cuts through the heart of every human being. Jesus has come to deal with that heart. He's come to show us places that, you know what, these things are good. They need to be developed. They need to be encouraged. They need to be watered. And then these are parts that need to be cut out and thrown away because they're corrupt to the core. 
And Jesus knows that what's in individual hearts is what aligns people into individuals um, and then to communal systems and structures and organizations and nations. And he knows that the bigger those things become, the more darkness they potentially can produce. And the deceit of the enemy is very, very eager to blind us to that kind of corruption. John's reminding us that there will come a day where all of that will be shown for what it actually is. And depending upon which side of the light you're on, you will see that day either as glorious or as incredibly unsettling. So that's all the time we're going to take for this week. I know that was quite a bit longer than 30 minutes. So I'm glad you've tracked with me the whole time. If you did, way to go. Now, like I said, I have a few by the book episodes coming up soon. A few new people reached out this week on email super encouraging conversations. So thank you for that. Um, you know who you are if you're listening in to these. Uh, it's just, it's such an encouragement to hear people um, just share how the podcast is impacting them. Uh, please share the podcast. Please uh, tell a friend about a couple episodes that meant something to you or leave me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. Thanks again for those who support the podcast on a monthly basis. Some of you have even sent me some money through Venmo. Just wanted to give a one-time gift out of appreciation. So thankful for you. Appreciate that as well. And um, want to continue to produce good content for you all. And hope you have a fantastic week. Hope that you are safe during the voting process. And just uh, you know, be mindful of lots of the darkness that's going on in our world. But love people. Be a light in a dark place. Love Jesus, love your neighbors, love your family, and I'll talk to you next week.